Throughout Christ's ministry, he called people to follow him, to deny self in pursuit of Christ above all else. But what is Christ's call to deny ourselves, take up our own cross, and follow him mean for us today? Is this call made to the neglect of all other earthly responsibilities? The gospel of Jesus has implications for every part of our lives, and we must learn what these are if we are to faithfully follow him. In Mark's gospel, we will learn of the kingdom of God and our part in it. We'll see Christ's identity as the suffering servant, his authority as the son of God, and what each of these mean for those who call Christ Lord. As we look at the life of Jesus in Mark's gospel, we'll see what it means to grow as his disciples and lay down our lives as we follow him. Well, good morning again. It's a joy to be here today. We haven't met. My name is Mike. I'm the lead pastor. And uh, in lieu of uh, an introduction, I've just got a list of announcements for us. So as Pastor Bruce mentioned earlier, today is Memorial Day, which has a special significance for us as believers. I think uh, as I was reflecting on Memorial Day, well, tomorrow's Memorial Day, but Memorial Day weekend, as I was reflecting on it, I, my mind was brought to Hebrews 11, uh, the Hall of Faith, where it's, it's a reminder of all those people that have gone on before us, that have fought the good fight, that have finished the faith. And, and yes, we're grateful to dwell in a country where we have the freedoms to gather like we do, where we have the, the liberties that, that we have, and, and we uh, do well to remember those who have, have paid valiantly for these freedoms that we have. At the same time, we have a freedom in Christ that, that uh, supersedes and goes above and beyond any of the freedoms that we have in this country. So I think it, that we do well to take time to ponder and reflect those who have gone on ahead of us. Uh, first one, is, or second one, is thank you for praying for me as well. So I had sinus surgery the, uh, a week and a half ago that I had been putting off for about 20 years. Um, I have chronic, I had, I hope I don't anymore, I had chronic sinus infections, so last, over the course of last year I had five different sinus infections, which they just said, yeah, you need surgery, and I was like, yeah, I, I knew that when I was 14, so finally went through it, I had reduced turbinates, I had my uh, uh, sinus drain enlarged, and I had a deviated septum that they fixed, so the nurse as she was preparing me for surgery said, oh, you're getting the works, I, I guess I am. Um, so still, still on the verge of recovering, uh, Jan kindly left a stool up here. If I get too tired and have to sit down, I will do that. But I uh, am hoping that I don't have more sinus infections moving on from here. Uh, another one is a giving update on the Keep Looking Up campaign that Bob just prayed for for us. Um, so far, we've had $29,150 given, but in addition to that, someone has donated a matching grant for the first $100,000 that has been given, which means total to date is $58,300. So we are over a third of the way there to having the parking lot replaced. So the sooner that the money comes in for the parking lot, then the sooner we can start replacing that. So we'll uh, be solely releasing more information about that. We're going to be working pretty hard over the next week to compile a document that you guys can look through. There's actually, if you read carefully through the Friday News Flash, there was a website link that you can go to on a regular basis to read more information about where we're at, about what the proper uh, procedures that we're going to be going through, what has been given so far, all those pieces. So we'll be uh, making a link to that available 
available in Church Center as well moving forward. Again, if you have questions about that, talk to myself, talk to Ross primarily, but you could talk to any of the overseers. If you were careful and paying attention when you came in, you probably also saw shingles out in our parking lot. If you hadn't heard, uh, they, they looked at our old asphalt shingles and found hail damage on them, which means insurance has given us a large check to actually replace uh, any of our roofing that has asphalt shingles on it, which is a huge blessing, but we're not jumping ahead of the gun, spending money that we don't yet have. Uh, that was money that came in and they started working on repairing a lot of the asphalt shingles on our roof this past week. Um, the third one, and I think the most important one, is if you couldn't tell, Kara is pregnant. But if you didn't know, I got this hat just for this purpose. We're not just having one baby. We're having our own set of Minnesota twins. Um, but let me tell you about the past month, because it's been a roller coaster and a journey. I don't think I'm supposed to wear a hat when I preach, so I'll just hide it here. Um, so we found out about a month ago uh, that we were having twins at uh, the Amnion was having us. Is my hair okay? Uh, <laughs> I'm going to have to put the hat back on. Um, we found out, we, uh, Kara signed up for a, a little uh, special free ultrasound at Amnion. Um, if you guys remember last fall, we had a miscarriage. This past February, we had a second miscarriage. Um, and so we were kind of anxiously waiting to see if there was actually a, a baby in there this time. Um, so we, she signed up for an early ultrasound. We went in, and actually one of my friends from high school's mom was the ultrasound tech there. So she came out two minutes after uh, she had brought Kara back and said, I need you to come back here. And I was like, oh, no, here we, here we go again. Um, and she said, what do you see on the screen? And I was like, you've got to be kidding me. Uh, is that two babies? And she said, yep, you got twins. Oh, all right. Well, uh, Thursday of that week, we went in for the official ultrasound, and one of the babies was actually labeled as having a prominent nuchal fold, which is that little, like, bend in the back of the neck. Essentially, we've done a lot of research now on this uh, uh, issue. Um, it happens in kids of all ages, but fluid develops in a specific area, and it's a primary marker of uh, chromosomal abnormalities. So, uh, Downs would be the most, most commonly known. Uh, it can be Turner syndrome in, in females or uh, some other trisomy issues. I've learned all sorts of new words that I didn't really want to know about or have anything to do with. Um, so we went in a follow-up ultrasound care went in the next week, and not, it wasn't just a nuchal fold. It was actually so big they labeled it a cystic hygroma, which we were told has something between a 10 to 20% viability rate. Um, and, yeah. So it's, it's been a heavy past month for us as we were thinking and processing and praying through implications of what does it mean to have twins, but uh, the doctor basically told Kara, be prepared for either a miscarriage or a stillbirth. Um, so how do you rejoice for a, a baby and then at the same time mourn one that is probably going to die uh, before it even is, is able to be held in our arms? Um, so we've been praying for the past few weeks for uh, God to bring healing and patience for us as we entered into uh, pretty difficult few weeks here. We went in for an ultrasound this past week, and uh, this was the baby that had the nuchal fold. It's gone. Um, so it's, I mean, it's, it's, Kara described it well. She said, I feel like we just found out we're having twins again. <laughs> um, so you, you go from this unbelievable high of, yes, babies, to, whoa, what does twins mean, to low of, uh, one of the babies isn't going to make it, to high of, oh, wow, we are going to be having twins again, aren't we? Um, so we went in this past week, and they did measurements on, on both of them. 
Um, everything's normal. Like there's no nothing alarming. Everything is measuring exactly as it should be. They're measuring the exact same sizes, the exact same uh, everything. Like the doctor said, you, you can hardly tell that there was anything wrong with this baby. Um, so they're like they canceled the next ultrasound for us. They're continuing to move forward, but and they're like we don't know why this happened, but it looks like we're moving in the right direction. And so it's a huge. Uh, Thanksgiving for what God has done in the midst of, of our lives. So thank you for those of you who have known. Bob had to leave to go to a um, brunch, but uh, I, I was telling him after I found out, Bob, we're going to have more kids than you know, so you might have to come out of retirement. If you guys didn't know, the Detmers uh, had four kids at one time. So I'd much rather have twins than four, but if anyone knows how to handle twins, please let us know, because we're trying to, trying to brace ourselves and prepare for that. Part of the reason I share that is I think it's important for us to share what, some of what's going on in our lives. So, Rose, you're here. We give thanks to God for that. Um, there's, uh, if you have been following the prayer, prayer chain this past week, uh, Dan Dixon collapsed at his house because he had fluid in his lungs, and he had a quadruple bypass surgery on Friday, which he has, has come out of. Um, it, it was a reminder for me this week, as I've been uh, thinking our, our own babies and twins, um, how difficult life is. <laughs> Just stop there. Um, I don't know how people survive or thrive or go through life trying to work through these things in their own strength and power. And so I just want to take a moment to remind us, we're going to be talking about prayer a bit today, and, and even uh, one of the best prayers in the Bible, I think, is in today's text, where it says, I believe, help my unbelief. Uh, sometimes, as, as uh, uh, oh shoot, life to, Dietrich Bonhoeffer um, said, sometimes we need each other because the, the strength and the faith in, in my brother is, is stronger than the strength and faith that I have in, in my own power. Um, so we all need each other. So even if you're not aware of what's going on in, in the church as a whole, I mean, there's, there's requests that come through the prayer chain, but take time to pray for uh, our brothers and sisters who are sitting next to you on a regular basis. We don't always know what, what's going on. Like, we as staff often get a peek behind the curtain of things that are going on in, in people's lives more than the rest of you, and there are always things to be praying for that are going on in people's lives. So take time to, to pray for regularly those who are involved and invested in, in your lives and the people that are sitting next to you, because we don't know what God is doing in us. If God prompts a name or a person in your mind, take time, stop, and, and pray for them right there. So with that said, we're going to dig into Mark chapter 9 today. So if you have your Bibles, I invite you to stand with me as we read God's Word together. We're going to be in Mark 9, starting in verse 14, and then go all the way through the end of the chapter. Hear the Word of the Lord. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them, and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed, and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boys to him, and when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked the father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it has often cast him into the fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. 
And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out. And the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. They went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know. For he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. And they came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent. For on the way, they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him, because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink, because you belong to Christ, will by no means lose his reward. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, <coughs> to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell. For the worm does not die, and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves, and be at peace with one another. As you're seated, I invite you to once again please pray with me. God, it's amazing that you not only hear our prayers, but you answer our prayers. So I thank you for the ways that you have worked in us. We can think of uh, numerous ways just over the past week where you have answered specific prayers that we've had in our body. And so we give thanks to you for the protection and the preservation of, of our people. We give thanks and praise you for the ways that you have, have brought us safely thus far. We pray for the strength to continue following after you until you finally bring us home. Thank you for an opportunity this, this weekend to pause and, and give thanks and remember and celebrate uh, the gift of freedom that we have. But more importantly than that, the gift of freedom that we have spiritually in you. Pray that as we study your word that you would conform us and transform us from the inside out. Help your word to bear fruit in all of our lives and may we believe more strongly in you and who you are and what you have said. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We begin this story looking at a desperate father. Last week, uh, Mike reminded us of the high of the transfiguration where they saw Jesus exalted as he truly is, and, and just a verse later, we are brought low by a scandal brewing with the rest of the disciples. Uh, last week, uh, Pastor Bruce led us uh, through a time of prayer for those who are going to be uh, going to serve at camp this summer. And if any of you went to camp growing up, you understand some of this experience that the disciples are feeling. 
you start with the high of camp where you come back just on fire and sold out for Jesus. You're going to take over the world, your community, your area, for your, your high school, for the things that Jesus has been doing in your life. But then the reality of coming back home starts to set in. The high lasts for a little while, but at some point, it seems that the shine wears off and people generally seem to go back to exactly how they were before camp. Now, not always, and so we give thanks and praise to God for those situations where someone's life is uh, irrevocably changed, but not always. Now, the other nine disciples have gotten into a bit of a, a pickle here, and it ends up with them having a showdown with the scribes. Now, the scribes haven't, haven't been in uh, many passages that we've studied together for a while, so these scribes are seen as the experts of the law. So think of them as the lawyers at the time. So if we look at this, this story, just at, at this first verse, it, it almost seems to be like an unfair fight. So think of a high school dropout versus a lawyer, and it's not going to be a, a, fair, a fair fight. So from an outside perspective, this is an unbelievably unfair argument. It reminds me of a, a shirt I saw one time, and someone said, I would love to have a battle of the wits, but you appear to be unarmed. Now, it's not just the scribes and the disciples who are having a showdown here, because there's an entire crowd that is watching what is taking place here. But the crowd only wants Jesus. The disciples are second class, and, and that will be actually demonstrated explicitly in just a few verses here. So what were these disciples and the scribes arguing about? Well, into the scene comes a desperate father. Jesus asks, verse 16, what are you arguing about with them? The father screams out, teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. This father is looking for healing for his son. A demon has invaded this son's life and, and made him manifest symptoms that sound a bit like epilepsy. Now, we've seen throughout this book a whole bunch of people coming to Jesus asking for healing, and this man is no exception. People had heard the good news about the healing that Jesus brings, and they start flocking to him. Now, unfortunately for this man, at least originally what we saw last week, Jesus was a little busy hanging out with Moses and Elijah. So instead of asking Jesus to heal his son, he asks Jesus' remaining disciples to perform an exorcism on him. But these disciples weren't able to. Now, it's important to remind us that the disciples are, are actually meant to represent their teacher. Uh, a few weeks ago in, in Mark chapter 6, we looked at, at the story where Jesus sends out the disciples two by two. Now, listen to the way that Mark actually described it back then. It says, so they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And... They cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. So this exorcism that, that this father is asking for should have been old hat for the disciples. They'd done this before. They had apparently been very successful because Mark actually says many demons, not just a couple demons, many demons were cast out from the disciples. So because the disciples are supposed to stand in and represent their teacher, the scribes would have jumped at an opportunity to throw doubt on Jesus' rising fame. So suddenly this issue between the scribes and the disciples becomes crystal clear. The scribes are doubting Jesus' ability to heal, meaning he's not actually worth following. So if the disciples had heard that, that the scribes were casting doubt on who Jesus actually is, the natural response would be to fight back, wouldn't it? But, but Jesus isn't worried about the same things as the people who are nearby. We've seen that throughout this entire book. Jesus keeps trying to teach his disciples to look deeper at what's going on, but they continually miss it over and over. And so do the crowds, so do the scribes, and I think we are guilty of missing it too. I've been struck throughout our, our study so far in this gospel how quickly Jesus brings things back to his teachings, either with the crowd or with the twelve or just individuals. See, Jesus based everything he does on his teaching. 
His words, which were not just his words, but were the words of his father, were what Jesus continually brought everyone back to. Why do we tend to operate or think that Jesus' words aren't as effective today? Now, we see a really interesting response from Jesus in the text here. Verse 19, Jesus' response to this inability to heal, he describes them as a faithless generation. A faithless generation. And then he asks, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? It's almost as if Jesus reached the end of himself and he can no longer contain his frustration at all this unbelief that people are demonstrating. So by describing them as a faithless generation, Jesus is revealing the real problem with the people. These people don't believe who Jesus is, including the 12 disciples. I love the way the CSB translated that second question, how long am I to bear with you? It said, how long must I put up with you? Now, I think we see examples of this throughout Mark's gospel up until this point of Jesus like throwing out these questions. But in the other stories, Mark just says that Jesus sighed. <laughs> so in one story where it, he, Jesus heals the mutant blind man, it says Jesus sighed as if he's saying, oh, faithless generation. Or another time when the scribes just, just jump on him as soon as he crosses across the sea and, and they ask him to perform a sign for them. And again, it just says Jesus sighs. <laughs> So this time, instead of Mark saying all Jesus did was sigh, Mark lists exactly what Jesus sighs. Now, who is Jesus like directing these questions to? Because there's a few people in this story. Is he directing it to the disciples? Is it to the scribes? Is it to the crowds that are watching what's going on? Is it to this desperate father who is asking for help? I think it's all of the above. He's looking at everyone around him and saying, none of you are putting your faith in the right direction. A commentator on this section, a guy named William Lane, summarized this really well. He said, the rhetorical questions express the loneliness, it's important, the loneliness and the anguish of the one authentic believer in a world which expresses only unbelief. So Jesus is the only one throughout this entire story who actually has belief oriented in the right direction. He's the only one who's actually believing the truths of, of what God has revealed himself to his people throughout the entire world. Now, the issue is all these other people are expressing belief in something, but it's aimed in the wrong direction. It is ultimately toward themselves. And because of that, just like the prophets of the Old Testament, Jesus implores these people, how long is it going to be before you get it? There's a story in, in uh, God talking to Moses in Numbers 14, 27, where God says, how long shall this wicked congregation grumble against me? Now, I think this is encouraging for us, actually. We can take heart here because disbelief has actually been a marker of God's people from the very beginning. Even when God has answered prayer after prayer, even when he answered need after need, even when he dealt with problem after problem, they continued to not believe. Think of the stories that we read, the, the Israelites walking across a dry seabed, people being hungry, so manna and quail coming every day, just enough for them to eat. And how often do we do the exact same thing today? We're walking through a bad or a difficult season in our life, and we use that as an opportunity to blame God. We ask Him what's going on only to be brought through every difficulty and then go right back to living as if we don't need Him anymore, as if we can manage things in our own strength. As I shared, this past month has been really difficult for me, um, and each, each week I feel like what the point of the sermon has been is, do you trust God? Do you believe in God? And each week, I feel like I'm just primarily preaching to myself. God continually asks the question, do you trust me? 
Do you believe that, that, that I will provide for you tomorrow just like I provided for you today and yesterday? Wednesday this past week, we had our, our ultrasound, and I was up that morning praying for it. And in, in the middle of my prayer, I literally asked God, uh, will you please give us some good news about the babies today? Um, it hit me. I've already gotten it. Good news is just a trans, transliteration of the word gospel. <laughs> we have the best news of anyone in the world around us. Um, if you didn't hear, uh, Tim Keller died this past week, and he's talked about, about some of these ideas of, of what death means, what death looks like for us who are Christians. And, and he pointed to a, a quote one time from George Herbert, Herbert who was a, a Christian Puritan writing about the same time as William Shakespeare. He has this beautiful picture where he says, death used to be an executioner, but the gospel has made him just a gardener. Death used to be an executioner, but the gospel has made him just a gardener. Dear church, we can rejoice in the midst of suffering. We can rejoice even in death because we know that everything will be made right again, even if it's not on this side of heaven. Shortly before he died, Tim Keller actually said, all death can do now to Christians is make their lives infinitely better. <laughs> infinitely better. But in this case, Jesus actually decides to show what healing will look like here and now. At the end of verse 19, it says that he, after, after asking these questions, he commands them, bring him, bring this boy to me. Now, the spirit immediately, as soon as the spirit sees Jesus, puts this boy into a convulsion. He starts foaming at the mouth, and the trigger is just seeing Jesus. Now, there's no wonder for us that some people get very angry when confronted with the realities of Jesus. Because following him means you have one of two options. You either die to yourself and live for Jesus, or you die to him. But there, there's no alternative. Because we're in a cosmic battle every single day that we wake up. It's not fought with swords. It's not fought with tanks. It's not fought with drones. It's fought by prayer and holiness. So then after this boy goes into this convulsion, uh, Jesus turns to the father again and invites him in to tell his story. How long has this been happening to him? Once again, this should stand out to us because Jesus is treating each individual as an individual. He's treating him as a person. He's never too busy for anyone. He's never too distracted for everyone. No one is, is, is like below the, the, the foresight or the attention of Jesus. Everything Jesus does is geared towards glorifying his father and then helping others take one step closer to himself. But notice where the father lands in this story. He's in desperation. The father responds, uh, verse 24, often cast him, if you can do anything, have compassion and help us begging Jesus to do something, if you can do anything. Now, what's, what's ironic is multiple times throughout Mark's gospel, we, we see Jesus literally moved with compassion towards people. Both feedings of the thousands list Jesus being moved with compassion because people have a need that he can feel. Why would this time be any different? But this father doesn't know that. And that's part of where it's the job of other people to inform this father of the good news of what Jesus can do. So the disciples, instead of trying to defend Jesus' honor, which in a weird way was trying to defend their honor, they should have been looking for opportunities to proclaim the realities of who Jesus is. They just demonstrated this in last, the last chapter. Peter said, you are the Christ. But unfortunately, as we've seen throughout most of the gospel, the disciples continue to remain blind. So Jesus responds to the Father, if, what's this if? It's almost like an Ige Montoya. You keep using this word. I do not think it means what you think it means. God can do anything for those who believe in him. In God's economy, there's no if. There is a when, but there's no room for doubt when someone believes in Jesus. 
And the father actually sees this, believes it, and acknowledges it far quicker than the rest of the disciples. Verse 24. (coughs) Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, (coughs) help my unbelief. I think this is one of the best prayers in the Bible. And a prayer that I think we should pray every day. I believe. God, please help my unbelief. Now, think of how much uh, belief or faith it takes for Jesus to work. In Matthew 17, 20, Jesus says, the amount of faith that it takes for him to move is faith as small as a mustard seed. How much faith is that? Not very much. What, what that demonstrates is the point of, of the faith is not the strength of the faith. It's the object, the person that we are centering our faith around. Like, you could have the biggest faith imaginable in pixie dust. That's the stuff that uh, Tinkerbell gives off, that Peter Pan sprays over people and they can fly. However much faith you want to put in, in pixie dust, you're not going to be able to fly. But if you have faith, the, the tiniest amount of faith, is faith as big as a mustard seed in Jesus, it's enough to literally transform your entire life. But not just your life, it's enough to transform the lives of everyone around you and the rest of the creation. Literally everything you see. Faith as, as big as a mustard seed is enough to transform everything that you see around you. So Jesus moved with compassion, moved with love and care for people, sees the crowd running towards Jesus. Verse 26, after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out. And the boy ends up looking like a corpse, meaning people start thinking that that Jesus just killed this little boy. And then Jesus responds. Verse 27, literally, you could translate that. Jesus raised him and he was resurrected. So Jesus what we've seen so far, he, he, he is, we're in the middle of these uh, three different announcements of what Jesus came to do, that is die, be buried, and then resurrected on the third day. So he's talking to the disciples about this, they continue not getting it, so he demonstrates exactly what's going to happen to him through this little boy. Looks like this boy is completely dead, he's a corpse, everyone thinks he's dead, and Jesus raising him, the boy is then resurrected. So finally, after this, Verse 28, he withdraws from his disciples to, it just says, the house, which is potentially Peter's house, which we've seen again, the home base of Jesus' operations. The disciples didn't want to be embarrassed in front of the whole crowd, though. So verse 28, why could we not cast it out? So Jesus uh, then answers very quickly, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Now, in Jesus casting out this demon, did Jesus pray before he healed him? Nope. So there's something deeper going on here, because Jesus didn't pause in the middle of this, take time to pray, and then command this demon to come out. He just commanded the demon to leave, and he was gone. What we need to see is, and, and be aware of is, is prayer signifies something. When we are praying, we are, we are demonstrating that we have complete dependence or reliance on God. Now, uh, Mike actually mentioned it in his uh, devotional this past week, but Tim Keller's book, Prayer, uh, the subtitle kind of gives the, the summary of it away, Experiencing Awe and Intimacy with God. So in this book, he defines prayer as both conversation and encounter with God. Or another way, we we answered that question together today. Prayer is pouring out our hearts to God in praise, petition, confession of sin, and thanksgiving. Or another way of summarizing that is that is communing with God. It's not some mystical like, "Mm," where we just gather around and sing kumbaya together. It is actually being in a relationship with the creator of the universe. Or another way of summarizing that, you could say it's, it's an outworking of 1 Thessalonians 5.17, where Paul commands us to pray without ceasing. Were the disciples not living this way? Were the disciples not praying without ceasing? Well, to answer that, we need to continue on and look at the next section, where we move from a desperate father to desperate disciples. 
Now, first verse says, it went on from there and passed through Galilee. Remember this map that I have shared with you before? Galilee is the center base, the, the primary area where Jesus had been ministering most of the time. Capernaum is right there, which is Jesus' home base of operations. So Galilee would be somewhere around this area here. They are moving uh, outside of Galilee now and starting to move towards Jesus' ultimate destination, which is crucifixion on a cross in Jerusalem. I probably should have given you a spoiler alert for that. That's what's coming. So right now we're in looking at these desperate disciples moving through Galilee. And Jesus is trying to withdraw to spend time teaching and investing in his disciples. He's trying to stay hidden because the crowds keep getting in the way. These healings are, are not Jesus' primary mission. He's trying to get his disciples ready for what's going to be coming. But what is this, this uh, uh, teaching, training, centered on? Look at verse 31. The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him. When he is killed, after three days he will rise. The disciples' response, they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. Why do you think they were afraid? Like they, he, he was their friend. They'd been spending time with him. I think it's because they didn't want to be embarrassed. In front of this entire crowd, they'd just been embarrassed and humiliated. They had been accused of being faithless, just like everyone else. When they were crossing the boat, Jesus had questioned their hard-heartedness, yet they continue on in their misunderstanding. Remember, this is a theme throughout the Bible. It's a theme of God's people and remains a theme for us today. We have hard hearts. We get afraid to ask them. What the disciples are forgetting or unaware of is questions aren't an issue or a problem. We saw that with, with the Father. He said, I, I do believe, but help me in my unbelief. The problem is remaining stuck in your unbelief. Like I've, had, I've had multiple conversations with people who, who have left their faith. The term uh, generally today is, is like a progressive uh, Ex progressive Christian or an ex-evangelical, they have left their Christianity behind. Things like the Bible is anti-science. Things like we don't know what the Bible actually should say. We don't have those original manuscripts. The reality is there are answers to those questions. Believe it or not, we could spend uh, hours digging into some of the textual manuscript evidence that we have that points to the validity of every word that we are reading in our Bibles. But if you don't ask the questions, you're not going to find the answers. There's a reason that, that we have the faith and the hope that we do. It's not some fairy tale, like, pie-in-the-sky, fake thing that we are putting our hope and our trust and our confidence in, but we actually have to ask these questions and then be willing to dig into where these answers are going to lead us. Because ultimately, all truth is going to point us to God. God is the author. God is the source of everything that is true. So if we pursue things that are truthful, it's going to lead us and land us as becoming followers of, of God, of, of Jesus. So then they, they continue on in their journey. They finally get to Capernaum, and when they get there, Jesus asks them, what were you talking about on the way? And the disciples are once again embarrassed. There's an underlying issue that has been going on here because they're using the time to fight about which one of them was the best. Now, believe it or not, this would have been a normal conversation in the first century. Remember, I've shared with you multiple times that humility was considered a vice and pride was a virtue. That was the normal cultural idea that the disciples were living in. Even Jewish writers in the first century frequently discussed what the seating order would be in paradise. Who was going to be seated where? Who was going to be closest to God? Even dinner, when people would eat meals together, there was a prescribed order for where people were supposed to sit. So when you hear something like that, it starts to make sense why people would be offended where Jesus would sit next to and eat with sinners. It was shocking because that was not the normal order of operation. So this becomes another teaching moment for the disciples. See, in God's kingdom... Greatness isn't measured the exact same. Jesus' coming actually flips everything upside down. He says, verse 35, If anyone would be first, 
We must be last of all and servant of all. Last and a servant. I was told when I uh, finally surrendered to a call to ministry to, to pursue working at, at church is my, I need to be ready to clean toilets. That's what service in the church looks like. Friends, no gifting in this church is better than the other. In fact, honestly, the, the people that probably deserve the highest recognition probably won't get it until heaven. But that's what we should be looking for in the church. It takes all of us together using our gifts, not comparing ourselves to others, not worrying about who gets the recognition, but day after day striving to glorify God and encourage each other. So that's what the gospel message frees us to do. The gospel message that Jesus comes and, and gives us completely frees us. Again, Tim Keller, I've just been thinking about him a lot the past week with his, with his death, uh, but he's, he's described the gospel as we are far worse than you could ever dare imagine, but we're far more loved than you ever dared dream. Because of that reality, because Jesus loves us far more than we could ever dare dream, who cares what others think about us? We have a Father who loves us unconditionally. So to demonstrate this reality, Jesus actually uses an object lesson. So at verse 36, it says, He took a child, put him in the midst of him, and then picked him up in his arms, and said, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. Whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Now, uh, children weren't viewed in the first century the way we view them today. Like today, there's a tendency, you guys even awed when I showed you the pictures of an ultrasound. You can't even hold the babies yet. Like we have a tendency to view uh, uh, children as like little innocent cherubs whose like cheeks you want to squeeze. Children in the first century were to be neither seen nor heard. Like the lowest rung of the totem pole in society was children. Now, notice that it doesn't say uh, be like a child. It says to receive, and I don't even like the word receive. I think a better translation of the word would be welcome. Another way of saying what Jesus, or summarizing what Jesus is saying in this is whatever you did for the least of these, you did for me. So Jesus is actually calling us to be really weird in our relationships. Instead of viewing relationships as a means to an end or a way to climb a social ladder or a way to improve our own status in life, we're supposed to go out of our way to serve others, to look for those who can't return the favor and invest in them. So then John, uh, poor John this time, speaks out on behalf of the rest of the disciples and changes topics a little bit. So John says to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. Now look at the pronouns that are used in, the, in what John says. Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following who? Us. It wasn't following Jesus, it was following us. <laughs> so where John expects commendation from Jesus, he instead gets condemnation. <laughs> Jesus says, don't stop him. The people know about Jesus and, and, and they're talking about him and the hope and the healing that he brings. Why does it matter what team they're on? This is another example of, of serving the least of these. It's just like serving Christ. Verse 41, whoever gives a cup of water to drink, like the, the, the most common basic thing, just a drink of water, because you belong to Christ, will by no means lose his reward. So now we're starting to see why the disciples couldn't heal. They thought they could do it in their own strength, their own power. He's not following us. So they thought they had a secret key, like a secret code, whatever it was. We can do the same things Jesus can do. Just watch us. We've done it before. We have all the power. We have all the strength. In Jesus' name, watch us. What they forget is that without Jesus, they're nothing. They need to continue relying on him. They need to continue trusting in him, which is demonstrated by prayer. Prayer is what forces us to admit we're needy. Prayer is what forces us to face our sins. Prayer forces us to acknowledge who we really are. 
As we've seen throughout Mark, it opens blind eyes, it opens deaf ears, and allows us to rightly understand who God is. But how often are, are you, or how often are we, the same as the disciples? You know the right words to use. You'll share issues and prayer requests, but prayer requests, but only superficial ones with others. You will tithe regularly, you will serve regularly, but it doesn't impact or influencing any of the way you're living the rest of your life. See, Jesus isn't looking for more recognition. In fact, Jesus doesn't even need us. But he wants all of us completely. Because anything less than wanting Jesus completely isn't worth your time. He wants to come in and radically reorder and reorient your life, which means he wants the best life possible for you. But here's the thing. It only comes through service. It comes through dying. It comes through weakness. Once again, Tim Keller has helpfully said this, and it's, it's a riff off something C.S. Lewis said. But Tim Keller has said that true humility is not thinking less about yourself. It's thinking about yourself less. So he's gone on to say that if you met a truly humble person, you wouldn't think they were humble, but only that they were happy and incredibly interested in you. So are you interested in other people, or are you only interested in yourself? Last section that we see here is we come to a desperate Messiah, where Jesus says, whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, it'd be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. Who are these little ones that Jesus is talking about here? They're the poor and the marginalized who are following after Jesus. And he actually uses graphic language to communicate how they should be treated. He says, tie a millstone around their neck, throw them into the deepest sea. Now, the sea was actually something that was to be feared in, in this culture. Like, people avoided going to play at the sea because you didn't know if you'd get caught in the undertow. You wouldn't want to go travel on ships that often because it was a, a scary and a terrifying thing. Yet, yet Jesus is, is communicating that's how severely he would condemn someone who, who causes someone to fall away from him. Um, I've been thinking about this in light of some of the, uh, like the hashtag Church 2 movement, the, the public abuses that we've seen of pastors, the covering up of horribly graphic sin in Christ's church. And I think some of this is related to a quote from a guy named Robert Murray McShane. He was a Scottish pastor who only lived for like 25 years. Uh, but in his ministry, he said, the greatest need of my people is my own holiness. You know, it almost seems self-serving to hear that until you start thinking through. Character is the primary thing that we need to be looking for when we invite or ask people to come into leadership. For decades in the church, what we've been looking for is, is just someone who is gifted or who is charismatic, and we push them into leadership in the church far to our detriment. Where Jesus is saying, look at the character of these people who are caring for and loving the, the youngest people, the most immature people, the little ones who are believing in him. This is why it matters so much how you live. And this is also why I think one of the most important ministries in the church is kids and student ministry. That's why it's a blight on the church when abuse is revealed, because Jesus himself says this cannot happen. Now, just to be fair, because of the cultural moment that we live in, just because someone claims abuse does that not mean that that's true. But this is why it's so important to ensure that people's giftings don't outpace their spiritual development. But Jesus doesn't just stop at causing someone else to sin. What about the sin that you have in you? He says, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. If your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. What are you willing to do to pursue holiness in your own life? Would you be willing to, if your hand is causing you to sin, to cut it off? Or if your foot is causing you to sin, to cut it off? Or if your eye is causing you to sin, to pluck it out? Uh, John Owen, a Puritan author, has this phrase that has been really helpful for me to think through. He says, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Those are your choices. Be killing sin or sin will be killing you. 
Now, it's easy when we read this text, and, and everything I've read about this jumps to hyperbole. Jesus obviously didn't mean to, to like, cut your hands off or anything like that. And it's true. But don't miss that Jesus is using incredibly graphic language to make this point. What is it that is causing you to sin, and are you willing to cut it off in order to pursue holiness or not? So some examples for us today. If social media causes you to lust after people or things, turn off your socials. It's possible to live without social media. If your TV causes you to become lazy, either move it to a different place in the house or get rid of it altogether. If food is a temptation for you, find ways to limit food in the house. If your phone is, is become an idol for you and you use your phone too much or you become addicted to it, get a flip phone or something called a nothing phone, which is an e-ink screen. You can do like nothing. It's called nothing because you can do nothing on it. This is hard. I get that. And at times it's inconvenient to limit yourself this way. But dear saints, listen to me. It's worth it. It's far better to limit yourself here and come unburdened to Jesus when you see him face to face in heaven than to have what you want here, but lack it in heaven. I've heard a pastor one time say that this is either the closest to hell or the closest to heaven you'll ever live. Which way are you aiming at and what are you pursuing? And then the last thing Jesus talks about here is the need for us to be salty. Now, not salty in like language, like angry, you know, <laughs> but salty in uh, preserving. So salt in the first century is used for either seasoning, like food, like we use it, fertilizer, or as a preservative. And he says that uh, um, everyone will be salted with fire. So those that are salted and then put into fire can actually either be preserved. So the fire comes about as either a test for you or you're eternally going to be sitting in an eternal lake of fire. Now, Jesus has some weird things in here as well. Like verse 50, salt is good, but if salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? What's weird about that is one of the most stable compounds known to us is salt. Sodium chloride together is very, very difficult to get that to break apart. So how would it lose its saltiness? Well, some of what Jesus is saying is if you have true, genuine salt in your life, you can't lose it. Just like true faith can't be lost if it is oriented in the right direction towards Jesus. Now, what, what we see in this is, is we as Christians are meant to actually preserve a, or serve a preserving function in our society. Sorry, my throat's starting to get dry. <coughs> but I'm almost done, I promise. So the communities around us should flourish because we as Christians are in here. But the thing is, Jesus doesn't just leave, us, leave it up to us to try to figure out what it means for us to be salty. Verse 50, look on what he, he says. Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. The way that we demonstrate that we are salty Christians is by being at peace with one another. So he, he, he's saying, don't be argumentative. He's saying, keep short accounts with people. He's saying, live as peaceable people. Remember, we see in John 17, Jesus said that the way that we get along is meant to demonstrate to the world whether or not we're believers. So the world around us should be able to see a difference in us. The question for us is, do they? Would you pray with me? God, I thank you that we can have faith oriented in the right direction. I thank you that you have given us someone to believe in. And then you demonstrated that we can believe in him because he was raised from the dead on the third day. I pray that we, as, as people who have a tendency to be marked by unbelief, would instead put our hope, our, trace, our trust, our faith, our confidence in you. I thank you that we have Jesus as the author and perfecter of our faith. I thank you that he, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, scorned the shame, and is now seated at your right hand where he has brought us with him, where we are now seated in the heavenly places.
So help us to look to you, to keep our eyes and our gaze fixed on you, and to continue taking steps closer to you day by day. I thank you for the multiple answers to prayer we've seen over this past week in our body. We pray that you would continue working in us to bring healing, to bring restoration, to bring perfect unity and and union that is is coming only because of, of what you have accomplished in our lives. Thank you that you are a good, kind, gracious Father who wants what's best for us, that won't stop pursuing us, that will continue drawing us to yourself day by day. Please make us more like you. In Jesus' name, amen.